to the Data Nuts podcast today. It is Chris and I going back and forth on things that we found on the internet. Technical related things. Yeah, technical related things. Not like, you know, not every meme we found, although we have found a bunch. But uh, yeah. I got my safe search on. So, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so blog posts and podcasts and video and uh, places that we're going to be, you're going to catch up with Ethan and Chris and what's on our minds today on the Data Nuts. At backandpushers.net, you can find us in all of our Data Nuts shows, but infrastructure engineering or search for Data Nuts, you know the drill, spelled like astronauts in your favorite pod catcher. You can follow us at Data Nuts underscore show. I'm Ethan Banks. With me is the fabulous Chris Wall, and he finds Waldo every single time. Dude, I didn't come up with a better one than that. I know I've said the Waldo every single time, but I mean, you're, you're that guy. You just are. You're extraordinary at what you do each and every well, day. Well, that's why he wears stripes, because otherwise he could be spotted. That's I don't know. It's an adaptation of like a leopard dad joke. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let's just dive right in because I, I know we're going to get some booze about the level of banter there. The first thing I wanted to bring up was a link that I was reading about where the cloud guru interviewed Kelsey Hightower. It's a little bit older, like maybe a month or so old. And the statement is this big, bold headline. You need SRE skills at site reliability engineering skills to thrive in a serverless world. And obviously some snark came out of my brain at the moment like, you know, we'll, we'll, are we in a serverless world yet? I don't think so. But I understand the point of it being as we as we go into this new technological ecosystem, these are some skills to have. And, and I think really that the takeaway that I had was like, hey, this stuff's coming. Whether or not we know it's going to win or not, I, I think that's always debatable because nothing truly dominates all of tech. You know, there's always little pockets of stuff. But it's a great way to kind of extend a helping hand to those coming after, you know, Kelsia and whatnot, saying these are some things I learned he talks about his history, how he came into Kubernetes, his, his background at CoreOS, et cetera. Really good read. Well, what was the main point of that that value proposition? You need SRE skills to thrive in a serverless world. Because uh, I'll play devil's advocate here. Site reliability engineering, to me, is making sure that your app is available uh, no matter what happens to a given site. So if you've done your homework and you've done your design properly at multiple layers, you've got your networking redundancy, you've got your application spread out in an appropriate manner, you're not having all of your services hosted in one particular public cloud. And when you get to serverless, now a lot of that stuff is in theory gone because you're running functions against something that's happening in the cloud, getting an answer back and not having to think about a lot of that stuff. So what was he getting at with the site reliability engineering skills in the context of serverless? Well, I think the actual title came from the person that wrote the, you know, the author of the post. I don't think that verbatim came out of Kelsey's mouth, mm -hmm. but it was an extrapolation of when he's talking about, okay, he goes into Kubernetes a bit. Why is it making life easier? What's changing? And then towards the end, he starts getting really deep into, okay, the why, not, not just the how and the what, but as we deploy anything with configuration management and infrastructure as code and these kind of SRE type functions where not only do you understand how the application is put together, but you're also in charge of making sure it's maintained and deploying it and make sure it's healthy. And ultimately, I think like the biggest strength of anyone in the SRE bucket of a role is that every time they find an anomaly or they find you know something went wrong or something went not necessarily wrong, but outside of expectations, they write whatever is necessary to correct that automatically so that they're not continuously pulling the lever to get the banana. And I think that's really the heart of it. And, and he has this quote that I, I thought was pretty awesome where he says, uh, Kelsey's saying, you know, what's supposed to happen is when we give a name to a discipline such as DevOps, it should just roll up into the technology. 
And there's no reason you should be doing DevOps, you know, air quotes for decades. You know, once we get that practice right, it turns into the technology and we move on. And I think that was the the hallmark of the article is that if you build these skills internally now, like inside of your body, like, oh, we have the technology, we can become better than we are. This is just going to become nascent within the world of technology. So get the leg up now because managing things at scale is the name of the game. There's there's no real benefit to being able to control things in a imperative manual process. I think that's the heart of it. Not necessarily that you're going to be doing, you know, actual application availability for the rest of your life. Well, it also reminds me of something more more fundamental that we've brought up on the show before. Um, Mipsy Tipsy, I think, had the presentation that just because you're running things in the cloud doesn't mean you can live without operations. And you know, making the point that, yes, we're moving to a new world where a lot of things are abstracted from us doesn't mean you can get away from good fundamental infrastructure design. True. Yeah. True. Design never dies. Just just the engineering changes. Uh, I don't want to beat that one up too much. Really good. Recommend reading it because it's a nice interview style article. The other one that kind of pivots away from that a bit was an article I found that was AWS versus Azure which one's right for your cloud career. And of Ooh, course, I'm like, okay. Straw man. It hits all the right buttons in my noodle. And it's a comic book illustrated infographic. So <laughs> can this get nerdier? Like literally it's <laughs> Superman is AWS and Batman is Azure. So we, <laughs> we kind of know who's going to win. But yeah. uh, at the same time, it's a, it's a cool infographic that actually has legit looking comic book artwork where they go through you know, the numbers, what does AWS have versus Azure? Obviously, AWS kind of wins when you're talking about availability zones and market share and that kind of jazz. And at first I'm thinking, okay, is this just an ad for AWS kind of hidden as a comic? It might be a little bit, but then they go into, you know, the history of it. Well, what are the pros of AWS versus Azure? What about the other way around? What are the cons? What are some pitfalls to worry about? Also certifications, roles to look at, you know, what might actually fit with what you're doing inside of your environment. You know, like if you are this, the cloud can offer SysOp Associate AWS or the equivalent within Microsoft would be developing on Microsoft Azure. It gives you the course number, things like that. So I just really liked it. I've never seen something like this before. There's a ton of links that you can go into and it was just a fun read. Yeah, I, my, my immediate reaction to that title was straw man, just because it, it, it feels like an artificial argument where because you got AWS and you got Azure, which have a lot of very similar and parallel capabilities, but yet there are specializations within, I think of Azure particularly, that cater towards certain computing environments. It's not like, well, here's two products that do exactly the same thing. Well, it isn't as simple as that. On the other hand, when a lot of people that are in networking have been asking packet pushers broadly, what should I be doing in my career? I I like networking and I want to do networking, but it doesn't seem like that's the long-term future. Well, no, and where a lot of times we say is, hey, check out Amazon and AWS because they've got the certs. They've got the program that you can learn how to deal with public cloud. And they give you that that ladder. They give you a roadmap in the form of those certs that uh, seems far and away more advanced than what anybody else is doing right now. So it's hard to argue with the perception that AWS is the leader because, well, they are, aren't they? Yeah, they own almost half the market. And I think one of the, the I'll pull one one notable quote from here. It's to determine the best cloud service provider. You need to look at multiple factors. You know, pricing, storage costs, data transfer 
costs and loss rates and all these other availability numbers. And and yeah, I mean, if you look at the total cost of ownership of using public cloud, it's typically the movement of data that takes the lion's share of the money, you know, the egress and ingress costs. So it's certainly not something to just kind of ignore or at least to be cognizant of. You found something here, open fast functions as a service? I did. And this actually, I kind of worked backwards here. I was following Alex Ellis on Twitter, and he had a post saying, you know, basically that he was leaving his job to go do OpenFaz full time. And I'm, I'm like, that's great. What does that mean? Because I just saw recently that the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCNF was saying, okay, we're going to take some steps towards serverless, like this thing's real. Because I know at the KubeCon in Austin and some other things that were happening in Austin around serverless and containers and whatnot, a lot of people are really digging this. Like it, it's kind of at the what is it? How does it work? Are we going to call it serverless or FAS or whatnot? And it came up as like one of the most popular ideas at the conference. And I think, who was it? Platform 9 said the third most popular use case for communities. That's like, okay. And then working forwards again, OpenFAS was a project developed to make it really easy to kind of pick from a library of serverless functions. So kind of like Kelsey Hightower back in the day wrote the, you know, how to do Kubernetes and, and that became immensely popular. This felt like something similar, but also with a project associated with it on GitHub. So you've got a couple things going on in tandem. And these are the points I'll make to, to keep your eyeball on. First, you got OpenFAS, which looks really interesting. It's available on GitHub. You can check that out. We'll have the link in the show notes. Then you've got the CNCNF with their serverless working group that's kind of exploring it. And what did that sound like to me when I read it? Kind of like the IETF and the IEEE, like, oh, we're exploring this. We're going to figure it out. Hopefully, I don't know if if Greg listens or not. I'm sure he's like, you know, twitching from hearing (laughs) IETF and things like that. But uh, my hope is that, okay, this is actually good. We're sitting down to think about this and we're offering a lot of guidance with things like OpenFAS but we're not going to have to pay that technical debt that the standard bodies typically take to ratify some kind of standard. That's usually five to 10 years. I feel like this is going to be much more real time, you know, months, if not a year. They better not be five to 10 years. That's not going to, that's not going to work. By, by then the trend will have already happened at that's that right. point. Like <laughs> whether it be all serverless or not. So it's kind of like Oof. they can play it close to the best. But anyway, some really good links there. I definitely might recommend going into it because the, the reason why I felt like this was so important was this is really laying down the foundation of the changes that are taking place in the world of technology. And so being blindsided by this seems like a bad idea. It's so forward-looking, though, though too. I mean, it, it, very few applications in the world have been architected at the moment to take advantage of serverless. It's not like we're in the middle of this huge transition and we're seeing everything shift over to serverless. It's still early and a lot of people are figuring out what the cost advantages are, but it requires such a re what is it? Refactoring? I don't know if that's the right word in this context or not. But architecture. It, yeah. It's really the the major redesign of applications that but by apparently the advantages are strong enough that this is where we're headed, such that the Cloud Native Computing Foundation has created this serverless working group, etc. Meaning it does feel like something to take advantage of. One of the stats that sticks in my mind about this is Amazon AWS talking specifically about converting from running a virtual machine as IaaS to serverless could result in an 80% cost savings because of the efficiency you get. Rather than having a VM just sitting there spinning away, whether you're using it or not, you're calling upon the cloud to deliver an answer to you on demand as you need it uh, in real time. 
and only using the cloud at that very moment for that exact computation you need. So you get that efficiency. So it does feel like that's the future, but at the expense of having to completely rethink how you're doing your computing. Well, Ethan, here's here's my data points, and, and I, I don't disagree. I, this is not mainstream. This isn't the majority or even a small minute. You know, we're at the early adopter. We're almost we're not even really there. We're like the innovator and risk taker phase of the innovation curve. But when I see from Cloud Native Con, there was a state of serverless talk from VMware and IBM. It was like Mark Peake and Doug Davis were giving this talk. It's like, okay, that's interesting. I'm happy to see that going on. There, there's a lot of mainstream companies interested in this, you know, whether or not it's like architecture or just trying to get thought leadership foot in the door. But it's it's a good time to get into the conversation and learn it. It kind of reminds me of when VMware, the hypervisor, was becoming more mainstream. It's like, man, people that really saddled their, you know, their wagon to that early really reap the benefits of it because they understood the technology. They helped shape it in the communities and the forums and whatnot. I'm not saying place all your bets on this, but it feels like it's got a pretty strong community. There's even a white paper that the serverless working group put out that talks about not only just answering questions that people are thinking about around serverless, but also defining it because it's hard to build a community around something that's nebulous. So I just, my, my two cents is I'm keeping an eyeball on this. The CNCF is very interesting to me in general, but then obviously open FAS and just FAS and serverless type trends are interesting today because it's, it is quite variable. And I like seeing where it's going and potentially hitching a wagon to it when it makes sense. I hope FAS wins as a term. I just I just like it better than serverless. <laughs> I think it communicates better what's really happening there. Anyway, ah, whatever. We'll see what happens. Hey, uh, I thought we'd let all you Datanauts people know where Chris and I are going to be over the next couple of months. We've got some events that we're going to be attending. So me, the week that this show is going out, according to the current schedule, I'm going to be at Aruba Atmosphere in Las Vegas. So if you're there, tweet at me at EC Banks and, uh, and let me know. I'll have some Datanaut stickers with me and some Packet Pusher stickers too. And uh, come see me at the event, Mandalay Bay. This is the last week of March, just in case we publish this in some different order than we're currently planning. And then the next trip I got on the calendar is uh, Montreal in late July for IETF 102. I'll be hanging around there, listening to some of the IETF discussions, interviewing a bunch of people and recording, hopefully if I can get some things scheduled. And uh, hey, I might go to the Heavy Montreal Metal Festival that uh, is happening after IETF 102. I looked in the calendar and went, ooh. So I'm going <laughs> to give that a try and uh, try my hand with the, the metalheads and uh, and hope I don't don't get hurt for being a middle-aged uh, white guy. That uh, Yeah. <laughs> Look at him. Stereotypical dude. That doesn't seem to belong here. He has no dreads and no hair and uh, no tattoos. And, and, and why is he here headbanging? Oh, anyway, we'll see. Chris, you're doing some traveling too. Not as cool as yours. I suppose they're, they're a different kind of cool. So I'll be at the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit. Very lofty title for basically several hundred PowerShell nerds that come together to talk about building tools, sharing tips and techniques with one another. So that's April 9th through 12th in Bellevue, Washington hope to see some other PowerShell nerds there, especially as we're trying to go from 5.1 to 6.0 and PowerShell Core and .NET Standard. And then the next one that I know I'll be at for sure is out all the way out in August at the VMworld Conference in Las Vegas. That's the 26th to the 30th of August. So haven't missed one in far too long. <laughs> so I'll definitely be at this one as well. Uh, speaking of VMworld, I expect that I will be there too, although I have not booked that yet, but I have every expectation of being at VMworld. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Chris, rolling along, I've got some things I wanted to discuss here. Um, one is an article that uh, Ivan Pepelnyak wrote on blog.ipspace.net. Ivan is a um, he's a bit of a cynic and curmudgeon when it comes to new stuff coming out and new trends, and, and wisely so. That's what happens when you've been around the industry a long time. You see trends come and you see trends go, and so when new stuff comes up, you you tend to take a position of really. Huh. Okay. So uh, he wrote an article here, how self-sufficient do you want to be? And the whole idea was, as we look at new uh, networking systems, particularly was the context of uh, of the post, there's a lot of complexity that's happening under the hood. And so if it works where it's this self-delivered uh, system by some vendor that's going to do all the magic for you and just kind of hide from you the details of what what do you want to do? Maybe that's what you want. Maybe that's a good thing, but maybe maybe it isn't. And the, the question then becomes, when things break and your network's down, how do you want to get that fixed? Do you want to just go to the vendor and say, hey, vendor that made the magical thing that kind of hides all the complexity from me? It worked. Now it doesn't work. Something broken. We don't know. And then you got to have the vendor fix it? Or are you going to have people on staff that can uh, make things work for you and uh, because you've invested in smart people. And I don't know that he walked oh. away with, with an answer other than, you know, some, some cynicism about it. Um, and and it, there was a bigger point here he made about abstractions. So he brought up the law of leaky abstractions and he linked it to a post by Joel on software.com going all the way back many years to 2002. And it's a law that still holds true where when you abstract something and then the abstraction doesn't work like you expect, it affects other layers, other things that are being abstracted. So for example, Let's say you put users' homes directories on an NFS-mounted drive. This is a quote I'm, I'm reading from uh, Joel on software. You put users' home directories on an NFS-mounted drive. That's an abstraction. And your users create .forward files to forward all their email software somewhere else. That's another abstraction. And then the NFS server goes down while new email is arriving. The messages will not be forwarded because the .forward file will not be found. The leak in the abstraction actually caused a few messages, email messages, to be dropped on the floor. That's like a pine server back in the uh, back in the days, but yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, but but it illustrates the point of the leaky abstraction and networking. We got lots of these. There's a lots of com- complexity that goes into making a network go, and the more you hide when something breaks underneath, then something's going to be affected you know, higher up the stack and can get very difficult to actually troubleshoot what's going on. But isn't that kind of like I don't know? I had an I had a late seventies, early eighties car that I could basically fix uh, with my own two hands and change the oil and all that jazz and newer ones they're so cluttered with electronics and other things <laughs> yeah. i have no chance of possibly working on it i mean there's a cost to simplification there's a cost to operations versus what you automate away and abstract away i guess that's the balancing act right i, I maybe maybe i'm just so used to abstractions because i'm not going to go and schedule a virtual machine on a particular core or or chip or or you know hyper thread you know, and that sounds kind of like the argument that's being made here. Like abstractions go so deep in the virtualization world. Like literally we're abstracting away the hardware. And I think it's one of the three major words in VMware's old slogan. It was like pool, abstract, automate, something like that. Well, no, I, I think we need abstractions, right? I mean, if you look at programming languages, Python abstracts a lot of things that C does not. C abstracts a lot of things that a lower, a very low level language like assembler does not, et cetera. 
Now, I took assembler class way back in college, and you try to write a very basic function, and you get down to the level of having to push values into and out of registers so you can do something very simplistic like a a basic calculator, and you realize the complexity of what's going on. You're happy for a level like – or a language like C. And then you spend some time in C and realize all the things you got to do in variable initialization and the way you have to maintain pointers and memory and so on. And you get up to something like Python that does a lot of that for you. You're like, whew, it's a lot easier that I can do that now. So wait, what's your take though? What's your take? Like, should should you not abstract in networking? Like, what's uh, get on your soapbox? <laughs> I think it depends. I think it depends. So my my, oh, my soapbox is that, that there, for a business, you've got two decision points you're trying to make. You can make a decision to invest in a magical vendor operating system, magical system, GUI, all integrated, whatever, that just does everything for you. The latest terminology has been intent-based networking, for example, which is a a heavy-duty abstraction that covers a lot of ground for you and really takes a lot of the details of specific configuration, how it gets done and takes that away. But when it breaks, you really still do want someone on staff, I think, in a lot of cases to understand how the technology works. So now let's I've been talking about networking, but if we move it out to the broader world and the broader IT ecosystem, public cloud or an orchestration system like Kubernetes, do you just want to press the buttons and hope it all works? And then when it inevitably doesn't work, do you want to have someone on staff that can fix it for you? And, and that's that's the decision point, I think, that a business has got to make. Do you have those experts on staff or do you just farm it all out to a VAR or your vendor to fix it for you when it doesn't work? And and, and the answer is it depends. I don't have a great uh, answer if your network is constantly fluid and in change. Well, if your IT system is constantly fluid and changing. It probably makes sense to have that expert on staff because it's changing because you're trying to deliver an app in real time. If you have a fairly static environment, maybe you can get away with that you know, that vendor all-in-one system where they do it all for you because it doesn't change much. You don't change it much and therefore it's less likely to break. So when it does, you can probably call the vendor and get it fixed. Maybe that's a, a way to think about it. I don't know if you've got a take. Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of in a corner. I, I don't want to offend, but at the same time, I'm all in. I, I've obviously invested quite heavily in abstractions Yep, and – and it's also tough. I've been burned by vendors, but at the same time, I don't know how to quite articulate it. Let's just say I found more good than bad. Typically, the abstractions offer more value than they than they detract from. And at the same time, I do understand the value of having people on staff that understand the abstractions because that was literally my job for quite a number of years is, yeah, I, I relied on all the vSphere features for managing my clusters and whatnot. And when things went went wrong, I certainly SSH into a host and opened up top, you know, ESX top and dug into it. Like I knew that part of it as well. I just rarely needed to do that. So I, I guess it's a bit of both. But I, I would default to trusting. I, I can put it another way, which is I think if you're truly an engineer, you do understand how these things work. And so you should have the ability to build a network or an IT system uh, in a way that uh, demonstrates your knowledge of the environment. So one of the things I'm getting very interested in is kind of rolling your own network with open source and what does that look like? And if there are people who are truly network engineers, you should be able to do that. And is that a realistic assertion or not based on the state of where we're at with open source uh, network operating systems and white box platforms and so on? That's something that is very intriguing to me because I feel like what we're buying from vendors is been 
not over-engineered, but maybe over-complicated is a, is a good word where they've baked in a lot of things we don't need and we end up with a very complex uh, system with wheels and gears that are turning that we don't actually need. And if we understood what we needed and rolled our own, um, maybe we end up with a simpler system that's easier for us to operate. We've just gotten away from, I think, engineers, not just networking, but maybe across the board in, in a lot of cases. We know how to push the buttons. We don't actually know what the buttons do. We just figured out how to operate the turnkey system the vendor uh, sold us. Just slash 16, allow all. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's not hard, man. I just solved a whole, a whole decade of frustration. And let's, let's move on. You got more legs. Uh, let's move on. So some more things I wanted to raise uh, attention to. The NetworkCollective.com. It's a video cast by uh, a bunch of folks that I know, smart network engineers who've brought on a bunch of interesting guests from the networking community. It's a really focused on engineering chat, uh, a lot of good history and background about how we got to where we got in networking by chatting with some of the folks who were there when it happened. So good content there if you're interested in networking and more network engineering on the networkcollective.com in a little different format than what we do on Packet Pushers where you can get video and actually see headshots of the people chatting and so on. Yeah, shout out to Yvonne Sharp. I love uh, I love her. Ta- she's at Sharp Network on Twitter. I love her take on many of these because you sent the link over and I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to watch this. I, I learned from this show and I was like, man, she's uh has quite an impressive background. So kudos to you. Yeah, it's a, it's a great bunch of folks. Another blog post I wanted to raise here, rule11.tech. This is Russ White. He is a very prolific writer on that blog. It's a very busy blog, and he wrote some thoughts on rehashing certifications. And it's really the argument of why do you get a certification? What are you doing it for? Is it because you – know, just to quote Russ, one of the big dangers with chasing a cert is that you will end up chasing knowledge about using a particular vendor feature set rather than chasing knowledge about a technology. In other words, did you get that because you want to be certified in that vendor platform because you think that's going to get you a job and so you're really focused on that? And then Russ goes on to say, uh, quote, I argue that you should get a few certs and then go get a college degree. The degree might teach you things that you don't ever think you will need, but that fails to understand the point of a degree. Degree programs should not be designed like vocational school, which many degree programs are these days. They should not be about learning the latest language, but rather about writing skills, thinking skills, and programming skills uh, in, in general. And I just really resonated with that. When when Russ wrote that, that's very strongly how I feel about uh, technology education these days, uh, that, uh, yeah, you want that computer science background in a degree program that teaches you fundamentals and principles, not vendor-specific, vocational-specific kinds of skills that are ephemeral. And again, going back to the point I made earlier, teaching you to push buttons rather than teaching you, you know, foundational skills. Very true. I remember, so I split my time between for my undergrad between software engineering and as well as infrastructure engineering. I know the software was largely about the design elements. They taught us Fortran and COBOL and Pascal and C plus and all these different languages, but it wasn't about like the syntax and whatnot. It was, here's how you design. Here's how you, you know, handle issues with inputs. And it really wasn't about any one language. Same with the infrastructure side, you know, the network operating systems classes dating myself with the NOS term. Uh, was around Novell and Wintel and how to set up roles and, and the ways that you think about the architecture. And then the certifications were all, you know, were also helpful. I remember a Microsoft one where I was going for like Server 2003 or something like that. And 
uh, I ended up failing the first time because there's so many features I didn't know about. I was kind of kind of excited. I can't like, oh man, there's these features. I read about them and I started <laughs> using them at work, and then I researched. Yeah. You know, retook the exam. So definitely agree with Russ on what he talks about these two different things being about. Yeah, and as Russ concludes, he uh, he makes the point quote that you get out of certifications what you put into them, and if you focus on features exclusively. Then you're going to learn the features just fine. If you do this, though, each time a new box comes out, your certification will lose a little more value. Just making the point that certs are good and you get a lot of value from them, but learning the fundamentals and the you know the deep principles that are to be found in that certification are are also key. So don't just pass the test. You know, learn something that makes you more valuable. And uh, speaking of Russ, uh, he and I wrote a book that I think a lot of people know, but I'm raising it here anyway. Russ and I co-authored Computer Networking Problems and Solutions, and if you go up to Amazon, you can find that book, and you can go to my site, ethancbanks.com, and there's a book link at the top to help you find that, or you can search my name on amazon.com, and it's the first thing that'll come up in the list, although, sadly, none of the other books that show up, including a bunch of erotica, were authored by me. <laughs> there's no? some really funny titles. I'm like, wow, nope, didn't write that one. <laughs> I want a refund. I thought all of those were from you. I, I was kind of wondering. No, no such luck. My background. <laughs> no such luck. And I, I almost forgot to. I got to bring it up. Coming soon, I'm going to be doing a guest appearance on Ivan Peplenyak's Building Next Generation Data Centers course. It's a six weeks course. It's all online. Very practical. If you've ever heard Ivan, he's nothing if not practical and cynical, and he'll arm you to handle all of the the sad pandas that you'll encounter in the enterprise. But it's all about designing, implementing. You know, modern data center design, and I'll be on there talking about virtualization. You know, uh, a lot of the the challenges that I've hit around right sizing and dealing with monster VMs and and applications and whatnot. Uh, so I'll be on there, I think, for an hour or so talking, and then open for Q and A until basically people don't want me to talk anymore. So we'll have a link in the show for that as well. And now a word from me before we get back to the show. If you like Data Knots, you will probably also like another show on the Packet Pushers podcast network, The Full Stack Journey. The Full Stack Journey is hosted by Scott Lowe, who you might know is a world traveler, prolific technical blogger, and co-author of several books on VMware vSphere. Scott interviews people and discusses technology bringing the IT stack together. So have a listen to the latest episodes of The Full Stack Journey at PacketPushers.net or subscribe via your favorite podcast directory. And now back to the show. All right, rounding out the show, Ethan, you had a link about Red Hat purchasing our good friends at CoreOS. What's the deal there, man? You excited? Yeah, so CoreOS <laughs> is Tectonic and Container Linux and Quay. Tectonic maybe is the most notable uh, bit. It's the it, it's the element that is. Uh, essentially customized Kubernetes, um, as I understand it. And, of course, we had Alex Polvey on the show a while back. And so Red Hat bought them up for, for a big spend. I think it was $200, $220 million, something like that. So quite a, a significant acquisition of technology. And I'm I'm struggling a little bit to make sense out of, out of all of <laughs> why the purchase was done because it does – what CoreOS has to offer does overlap a, a bit with – Red Hat technology. So to quote Red Hat, they say, CoreOS can expand Red Hat's technology leadership in containers and Kubernetes and enhance core platform capabilities in OpenShift. Aha, OpenShift, right. OpenShift Tectonic. That's where I'm seeing a lot of overlap. OpenShift being Red Hat Enterprise Linux and Red Hat's integrated container portfolio. 
continuing the quote here, bringing CoreOS's technology to the Red Hat portfolio can help us further automate and extend operational management capabilities for OpenShift administrators and drive greater ease of use for end users, blah, 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 et cetera. So to me, it seems like they bought talent. Uh, they bought some code and they're doubling down on Kubernetes being the winner and them wanting to have a leading third-party um, distribution, I guess, for lack of a better word, of Kubernetes. Um, they want to be the leader here. And so they just took CoreOS off the map and then bought all kinds of engineering talent. What do you think of my interpretation there? What am I – yes, no? Well, I think when you acquire someone, you don't want someone that's completely out in left field. So seeing that there's some overlap to me is smart business because it means that, yeah, you're making a you're making an evolutionary arc there, but it is something that's also within your wheelhouse and you have a strength. And I know that OpenShift gets a lot of positive press. I think it's one of the more mm. popular kind of stack combination that gets you off the ground, especially if you're looking at Kubernetes. So I think if you're looking at as tectonic versus Kubernetes, I'm not sure that's really the right way to look at it. I think it's I think it's what you said to a degree, certainly buying some talent, some some good IP there. I haven't looked at any of the financial numbers, so I have no idea, you know, what the run rate or the uh, you know kind of revenue streams and booking numbers are for CoreOS. The number feels a little low, but at the same time it's a healthy exit for a great group of people. Like I, I don't think you pay enough um compliments to Alex on the show that we did on CoreOS, the the design that it's immutable and that you just deploy new versions of it to upgrade it. You know, there's no actual, there, there's no way to get into it. There's no way, you know, there's no yum or app get or anything like that is pretty awesome. And I think if you take that mentality and all the work that they've done with Tectonic and Quay and you melt that into OpenShift, it only really enhances that, that particular stack. You know, I, I don't really see this being a headbutting thing that that's being taken out more than a hey you've got a lot of good ideas and you do things a little differently than we do if we can combine these two this is going to be pretty kick butt well that that's the that's the question in my mind is their ability to combine those two and i don't know anything about the code bases I, so i have no opinion there more just a curiosity of when you have products that are in an overlapping space, sometimes a competitor is a competitor is bought because you want to take them off the map Sometimes a competitor is bought because you really want to leverage their platform, what they've got, but combining products is, can be super challenging. So if they're combining, that'll be, that will be interesting. It'll be really interesting if that's what ends up happening to the CoreOS code base. Yeah. And, and you can't forget too, like CoreOS has a lot of positive branding. It's a good buzz. I just like those people. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they had a lot of time and energy spent on the OCI, the Open Container Initiative. Everyone remembers Rocket, RKT. Mm-hmm. A word without vowels, you know, that, that kind of kicked off a lot of different things around the OCI standard. They're part of the CNCF. You know, they're, they're, you can't say enough good things uh, about that particular company. So I'm pretty excited. Like, who really hates Red Hat? You know, nobody, nobody, nobody hates Red Hat. They're like the gold standard in how to make money on open source. So, <laughs> No, right. They nailed it going all the way back years and years and years ago. You could become a Red Hat certified engineer, as I recall. And they were one of the first to do that and really move the usage of Linux into a, you know, a mainstream sense where business could have comfort around using open source because they had that support infrastructure that they need. So I agree with you. Red Hat's the golden child for sure. Congrats to them. I had a link that I wanted to share. I'm going to try the name here. Cindy Shridharan. I'm hoping that's somewhat close to, to what it is. I've been following Cindy for a while. It's at Copy Construct on Twitter because the content's really great. The first one that I read and shared um, and actually wrote a, a post about on Wall Network was the testing microservices the same way 
post and it's really verbose. It's like almost half an hour reading. It's really, really long, as deep and gritty as you want to get. The one I want to share on this particular episode was the on-call doesn't have to suck post. Apparently, it's about a 10 or 15-minute read, depending on how fast your peepers go. And it goes into lots of the sad pandas, the pain points, the rubbing salt in the wounds on being on call. There's some links there from um, Charity Majors as well um, around the content found on honeycomb.io. But really, it just comes into, okay, in this new paradigm, I feel like there's no longer the dev throws over code and then ops is just on call for it. It's more around, all right, if you're going to deploy this, you got to be responsible for it. You're going to be expected to keep it working. And that's an incentive to, hey, guess what? Keep it working, right? You're not going to just ship over crap and send over a text file that's like, okay, if the crap fails, press these buttons and reset this thing and you know, only call me if it's in dire need and you don't have their phone number. So I, I kind of like that. And it also kind of tries to pop the air, you know, the bubble of the romantic image of being on call. Like ops is like, yay, we don't have to deal with this anymore. Like, no, you're still part of it because as we move into this kind of SRE world, you're going to be more involved and more intimate and you're going to be hopefully finding those issues and, and fixing them so that they're no longer an issue so that the, the software engineer is able to write some code. But really interesting article. I enjoyed it. And there's lots of call outs from data points on, comments from Twitter, from links that other people have written. One of my favorites was uh, uh, Tim Gross said, kicking the can down to ops doesn't solve that problem at all. Someone is on call regardless, which is true. Like you're never, there's never just like, oh, no one knows if it goes down, it's not going to be up until Monday. Like someone's always on call. It's really, how do we make that person successful or those people successful? You know, instead of just saying, well, if there's a, there's a dumpster fire, here's a bucket of sand, have a good time. So good, good article. The big thing that uh, that really makes sense to me is the idea that uh, developers should be involved and should be part of the on-call process. And right in in uh, hopefully it's more sophisticated than uh, well now they won't ship crap because hopefully they didn't really mean to ship crap before beforehand or you know or cause bugs or anything. But I, I think there is a an element of ah, I'm on call for this. I got to think this through. Do I have a memory leak? Do I have you know and the kind of things that might take the service down. And, uh, you know, enforce a better quality in your pipeline to make sure that before that code hits production, it's it's good stuff. But there's another aspect here, and that is me being an infrastructure person who's been on, on various on-call rotations in various jobs over the years. The helplessness you feel when a service goes down and there's nothing wrong with the infrastructure, but everybody's looking at you and you can't get a hold of a person, a developer that you need – to help sort this thing out is incredibly frustrating. So to have a true relationship with the development team where you can say, okay, I'm on call, the service is down, these are the things I've checked, this is where I'm at, I need help. And knowing you've got a person you can talk to that's going to help you get that system back online makes it feel, rather than make it feel adversarial, it feels like everyone's part of the same team here and we're all working for the same uh, goal, which is <laughs> way better than where I've been in the past of, Oh gosh, I don't know who to call and I don't know what to do, but I'm incredibly frustrated. I'm going to escalate it to my boss who doesn't want to get called, who's going to have to escalate it to some other boss who doesn't want to get called, who's going to call some developer who can't be reached because they were never on call in many of the places I've worked at. So this change in mindset sounds amazing, just great that we're moving <laughs> that direction as a as an industry. Well, here's the meat and potatoes. If you read the article, but essentially there's a there's a list of why it sucks for those that aren't on call. Uh, which I haven't had to do in a while, but I still I still remember it. It was very um, caustic. 
you know, you got noisy alerts, you got things going off that has no critical information in it. You've got outages that could have been prevented with monitoring, outdated runbooks, lack of accountability, and you know, all these are <laughs> issues. And I, I thought it was neat because then there was a quote from a staff SRE at Google saying, you know, that the two fundamentals of being an SRE is that everything should be realistic, achievable, service level, you know, targets and error budgets are exist. And number two, the limits on toil, which is essentially how much effort are we spending to keep this up versus developing it, should be agreed upon. And those agreements should be, you know, do we, do we remediate it? If the constraint is broken, do we acknowledge what's going on? And that kind of alluded to the the statement made by Cindy, you know, service developers need to be responsible, not just for writing the code, but also managing the life cycle of the service, ensuring its health, observability, ease of debugging. It's interesting because these aren't things that make the service run. These are the things that make the service run well. And sometimes having that distinction is important. And I think it's missed, you know, like, can this service do the thing it was designed to do? Yes, that's typically, typically the answer is going to be yes, if it's been deployed. But can we make sure that it's deployed and rolled back and monitored and debugged and that the whole life cycle is occurring in an easy and you know toilless or light toil manner? Well, that's the question. And I think as you start designing your architecture and your infrastructure and your team to make this possible, that's when you start freeing up all of your employees to really craft some amazing stuff and just dominate the market. Right? That's how you're going to be competitive. Now, you found something else here, GitHub Open Source Project Trends for 2018. What are those trends? What were they, uh, what were they charting? <laughs> and this is like the icing on the cake. This is, this is more just a fun link that I found. I don't know if, if you're familiar with GitHub as the Octoverse, uh, which is basically the, the state of the Octoverse is, is set out every year with a bunch of stats. And so they, they kind of extrapolated from the state of the Octoverse 2017 to come up with trends. They, they obviously have a ton of data since they basically host everybody's source code. And so the big ones were, hey, cross-platform development is happening and that there's a lot of focus on that. Uh, so cross-platform or web development is, is becoming pretty huge. They list a lot of different types of projects, you know, Angular with Angular versus Facebook and Re- React and the whole list. I'm just going to read the list off. But a lot of things are happening that are outside of one particular language that deep learning is becoming huge they, they they call it a rallying around deep learning projects so there's like tensorflow is probably the most obvious mm-hmm. one as well as deep speech and Keras. new skills there's a lot of different um projects related to learning code getting a code job coding best practices which is a departure from hey i'm just going to use GitHub as a folder that is versioned for my artifacts now it's actually a lot of projects that have nothing to do with that don't host any code. They just host code-adjacent topics, which is kind of cool. And they listed a couple really well-known ones. And include people are like hosting their whole blogs on here now with Jekyll and whatnot. So it's weird. Those are the big three. And I, and I thought all the links there were interesting. I'll also include a link to the Octoverse if you've not visited it. It's basically a 17-foot-long web page that has stats <laughs> on everything. Yeah, I mean, if you were to print this out, it would take up a whole bedroom. But it's really neat. And you can, there's little hyperlinks to take you to like build information, connect, learn, work, et cetera. Uh, just fun stuff that uh, kind of gives you an overall sense of how big GitHub's environment, like how big open source is. It's ridiculously huge. So maybe that'll just help uh, kind of level set your expectations around that particular piece of the internets. All right. Well, I think that winds up our data knots for today, Mr. Wall. How can uh, people find you? Any, anything else you want to tell people to go look for this week? No, I mean, it's pretty straightforward on Twitter. It's at Chris Wall. Uh, wallnetwork.com is the blog. And then, as always, every Wednesday here on the Data Knots podcast. 
And I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitters, and I blog over at PacketPushers.net. I have a personal site on uh, on productivity at EthanCBanks.com, where I try to get an article in every couple of weeks or a month or so, uh, my thoughts on uh, personal productivity, what I'm doing with uh, to-do lists and email management and these kind of things as I'm slowly but surely developing a system that works for me. If you want to hear more nerdy engineering stuff, head on over to packetpushers.net. You've got the whole series of data not shows that we've done where we talk about containers and conferences, certs, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full stack engineering, if that's still a thing, storage architecture, all kinds of stuff like that. Security, oh yes, even that too. And until then, may your server lights blink, your store spindle spin and your cables be cleanly managed. Battling sad pandas. It's perfect, man. It's perfect. Thank <laughs> you.